One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to What's the Crack, and today I'm interviewing Steve Rolls, a senior policy analyst for Transform Drug Policy Foundation in the UK. In today's episode, me and Steve find out what's the crack with drug policy reform, the failure of the war on drugs, the ideal drugs policy, and the recent changes in cannabis policy. I hope you enjoy the episode, and remember to follow up on Twitter at WhatTheCrackPod, or email us at whatsthecrackpodcast at gmail.com. Also, I've introduced a new section called The Golden Ticket, where I ask my guests what drug policy they would introduce or remove immediately if they could. So keep tuned for that. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Steve. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Uh, Well, my name's Steve Rolls, and I'm the Senior Policy Analyst for Transform Drug Policy Foundation. And Transform um, is a uh, non-government organisation based in the UK, but operating internationally. We're a registered charity. We're sometimes called a think tank, but it's not a term I'm particularly crazy on. I mean, we do policy analysis um, around drug policy and, and drug law reform. And then we do various advocacy and campaigning um, related to that work. And, and a particular focus of our work historically has been on um, the legalization and regulation of drugs. So, you know, what would the world look like uh, after the war on drugs? How would we function and how would policy work in a post-prohibition scenario, whether it's in, in, in a single country, in a whole region, or, or potentially the whole world? So we've done a lot of quite detailed work modeling uh, how drug regulation can work to serve the public interest, to to improve public health and reduce crime and protect young people. And and uh, we've been doing it for about 20 years. So we, we've been at it quite a long time. And, and it feels like the, the, the world is either we're succeeding um, and in persuading people or the world is kind of catching up with us because it's started to move from theory into practice. And you know, lots, lots of countries are actually talking about it and a few of them are actually doing it. So um, Transform's profile is rising, both in the UK and, and internationally, and it's a very exciting time. Yeah, absolutely. You say that Transform has been going for over 20 years, and the internet tells me that you've been with the foundation since 1998. What would you say has been the biggest difference in UK drug policy that you've seen happen in that period of time? Well, I mean, it, relatively little has changed um, in, in, in legal terms. And it, it, in some ways, things have actually got worse because we've now got the uh, Psychoactive Substances Act, which basically bans anything deemed to be psychoactive. So, um, you know, friends and colleagues have, have teased me that I've been doing it for 20 years and there's trying to legalise drugs in the UK. And there's, there's more drugs illegal than, than when I started, which is it is technically correct. <laughs> Um, I think what, what what's changed is not so much the law, but 
um, to a certain extent, um, how the law is being enforced and how it's being uh, used. And, and I think those changes reflect a wider shift, a, a positive shift in the general debate, in the media and public and in the political domain about drugs. It seems like there's a growing acknowledgement that the current, well, that the historical approach to kind of punitive orientation of drug policy and the enforcement skew of um, drug policy resources has not been effective. I mean, I think it's it's hard to question that really. I mean, that drug policy aspires to get rid of drugs and reduce drug availability and, and deter drug use as a way of protecting public health. And it's it, it's clearly not doing that. It, it's fueling crime. It's making drugs more dangerous. Drug markets are expanding. Uh, use of a lot of the most dangerous drugs is expanding. Historically, drug use has, has been on a fairly relentless march upwards with a few little downtrends with certain drugs and certain populations. But, you know, it hasn't delivered what it was supposed to, and it's created all these other secondary costs associated with a, with a you know, multi-billion pound illegal trade. So it's been a disaster by any, any, any measure. And I think there's a general, you know, I think there's a general acceptance that, that the war on drugs, as it's sometimes referred to, hasn't worked. And that we need to begin a, a, a meaningful adult discussion about what to do instead or what, what might replace the war on drugs. And I think that's where Transform and, and, and a number of other organisations in the UK and internationally have come in and tried to, to, tried to sort of fill that gap and inform that debate. Um, and I think that's where, that's where things have moved on, really. I, even if the law hasn't changed for the better yet... The debate has certainly become a lot more informed and sophisticated, and public opinion has certainly moved away from the war on drugs towards um, a broader sort of reform platform. And we're beginning to see that in not so much in central government policy, but in local government policy. So we're seeing a lot of sort of local level reforms like drug testing at festivals from uh, uh, The Loop, for example, um, a lot of a lot of local authorities are now trying to set up drug consumption rooms to deal with problems of opioid overdose. And we're even seeing a number of police authorities putting in place diversion schemes. So people caught in possession for personal use are diverted away from the criminal justice system into some kind of um, uh, health intervention, which is a kind of de facto decriminalization of, of personal use. So there is movement, but not really from central government yet, except very recently, arguably for medical cannabis, although in some ways that's a slightly peripheral secondary issue when, if we're talking about recreational drugs. But it still probably reflects a general shift, a positive shift in the drugs debate that, that, that um, you know, ministers and politicians feel comfortable now to advocate for even medical cannabis reform. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you were talking about the diversion of cannabis. Is this the example of Durham, who have decided not to charge people for the possession of cannabis? Is that the same topic? Yes, yes. But it's not just, I mean, Durham, uh, Durham and uh, Bristol police uh, authorities, uh, they're, they're not, it's not just cannabis, it's all drugs. I mean, if you're caught in a sm with a small amount of drugs for personal use, you aren't uh, automatically prosecuted. The idea is that you'll go into uh, a particular intervention, and it, is, it varies between the police authorities. Um, but the idea essentially is not to uh, give you a criminal record and certainly not to send you to jail, um, because uh, we know from you know decades of experience that that's pointless, expensive, and, and counterproductive. It makes people's lives more difficult, um, particularly if they're, they're already disadvantaged. To, have, to then have to deal with a criminal record 
Um, it, it's, you know, it's just incredibly stupid and counterproductive thing to do. So the police know that better than anybody, really, because they're the ones there on the front line enforcing the law. And as the police get their resources squeezed, um, in, in a lot of ways, the police are leading a lot of the local level reforms because they're, they're, they're becoming increasingly intolerant of, of hosing money and resources at, at enforcing laws that they see as, as pointless and ineffectual. Um, and often actually making things worse because obviously if you're if you're um, a police force enforcing the drug laws, which probably affect about a third or or or, or a half of the young people that you're interacting with, that actually you know undermines relationships with with young people in a way that's really destructive, and that the police start being seen as the enemy instead of of being um, uh, there to protect people, which is just, just it's all the wrong way around. So. Um, the police, ironically enough, are driving a lot of the reforms in the UK, and, that, and that's very welcome. What hasn't happened yet is that the uh, central government and the Home Office haven't sort of picked up the baton and shown any leadership on this. So we've seen this kind of slightly strange uh, delegation of, of leadership um, from the Home Office to local police forces in terms of innovative drug policy reforms. But there are things happening, and I think that's, that's really, really welcome. Yeah, and speaking of not getting young people into the criminal justice system for possession, do you not think that this is the minor, I mean very minor, saving grace of the Psychoactive Substances Act, the fact that possession is not a crime? Because as much as I disagreed with the fact full, at the act fully, I was really grateful that the possession was actually not a crime. Yeah, I, no, absolutely. I think that was the, the, the one good thing you could say about that terrible bill. Uh, a pointless, idiotic piece of legislation was that it didn't criminalise possession. But it does beg the question, you know, it's interesting. The Home Office made that decision not to criminalise possession of drugs under that particular bill um, on advice from a number of uh, experts and um, uh, expert advice and and, and agencies that it would uh, unnecessarily criminalise young people, it would undermine relationships between young people and police, um, and, and, and would be would be uh, pointless and counterproductive. At which point you have to say, well, how does that not apply to other drugs? And and of course it does. That analysis it doesn't make any distinction between drugs. It's a purely arbitrary legal distinction which drugs are covered by the Psychoactive Substances Act and which ones are covered by the Misuse of Drugs Act. So we've got it, it's just very inconsistent, and hypocritical. Um, and when you know when you ask the Home Office, you say, well, what, you know, why are why aren't we looking at decriminalisation? It's advocated by the World Health Organization, by the Royal Society of Public Health, by the Royal College of Physicians, by the International Red Cross, by the UN High Commission on Human Rights, and so on and so on, and by the Advisory Council on Misuse of Drugs, the Home Office's own expert advisory body. They all advocate for ending the criminalisation of of, uh, of users of people who use drugs. And yet the Home Office refuses to countenance it. When you ask them about it, they just say, look, drugs are bad for you and we're not going to decriminalise. And you go, well, hang on, what about the Psychoactive Substances Act? Because uh, you, you did effectively decriminalise possession there. And they just sort of splutter and, and avoid, <laughs> avoid the question, basically, because there's, no def- there's no defending that kind of inconsistency. And ho- hopefully uh, decriminalisation of, of, of people who use drugs, minor possession offences, um, the, the removal of criminal penalties for that, I think it's probably uh, nearer than, than people think it is. I mean, we've got countries all over the world have done it. The evidence base for it is very strong. The expert institutional support for it is very strong. And in fact, you've got police forces in the UK are already effectively doing it in that people caught in possession aren't being charged 
they're being uh, directed into to, to health interventions. So it's sort of happening, and I think we're probably that's probably nearer than than many people think. I think one of the problems actually is the word decriminalisation because people don't understand it, and it's often confused with legalisation, which is obviously I think an important thing to be talking about, but it is different. Legalisation is is of the you know production and supply for adult use of drugs. Decriminalisation is simply removing criminal penalties for possession. So so the, the supply would remain illegal under a decrim model like, like Portugal. So there, there's a lot of confusion and, and it may be that it's more useful to talk about terms like diversion. So the police the police initiatives in, in Durham and Bristol, they talk about diversion programmes, diverting people from the criminal justice system into uh, appropriate health interventions. But it is happening. I think it's probably nearer, nearer than many people um, think. Yeah, I think that you're right with the de- decriminalisation language. I've um, only met a handful of people outside the drugs field that used decriminalisation in the correct context. Like the amount of people who um, assume that drugs are legal in Portugal is uh, quite surprising. So, yeah, maybe we need to change the name. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, you, you often get media articles where someone will have called for legalisation and the headline will say decriminalisation or the other way around. And you even get you, you even get you know media articles from you know from from decent uh, outlets you know like the New York Times and the Guardian and so on um, where where they'll use decriminalisation and legalisation interchangeably, um, which is just you know it's just annoying um, from a kind of pedantic point of view, but it's actually confusing for the public and I, I think it can hold up the progression of the debate. So one thing I do is if I talk about decriminalisation, I try and always uh, explain what it is. So I'll say ending the crim- uh, criminal penalties for minor possession offences or, you know, ending the criminalisation of people who use drugs. And then maybe if there's time to be explicit that that is different from legalisation. They're both important and they, they obviously they're, 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 they're linked and overlapping, but they're not the same. And we need to be clear about that because there will probably be a sort of incremental process of reform and it will inevitably start with a, a decriminalisation. So we, we need to be clear that they're, they're not the same. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so looking out of the UK, what country or area of said country do you think has the right policy for a particular drug? For example, perhaps it is Canada for cannabis or Portugal for the decriminalisation of opioids. Is there a particular country that has done it right with a particular drug? Well, I mean, building building on what I just said, I mean, in terms of decriminalisation approaches, um, I think Portugal has received a lot of attention, deservedly, because I think they've gone about it in in a very, uh, you know, in, in a very sensible, uh, pragmatic, evidence based evidence based way. That it, it, it's not just they didn't just change the law; they also reoriented um, their whole policy and and resources accordingly away from criminal justice towards public health. So they invested a lot in harm reduction and, and treatment um, and outreach to vulnerable populations. And it, it's been it's been very effective. So I think it's not just changing the law. It's more you have to sort of shift the whole paradigm from a kind of criminal justice paradigm towards a, a, a public health paradigm. And I think Portugal is a good example of that. Um, but obviously they haven't legalized. You know, drugs are still illegal in Portugal and, uh, you know, they are still supplied by 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 organized crime and unregulated dealers, which is a shame, but, you know, one step at a time. In terms of legalization regulation, um, I mean, most of the action has been with cannabis, I guess, understandably, because cannabis is um, generally seen to be at the lower end of the risk spectrum amongst the illegal drugs, or certainly the ones that are are widely used. 
um, it's particularly difficult to enforce the law against cannabis because it's just so easy to grow pretty much anywhere. Um, and people like it. It's just very popular because people enjoy using it. And so it's it's widely used. It's, in, it's impossible to enforce. Um, and uh, it, it's not unacceptably risky. Um, and, and for that reason, uh, you know, a lot of the progress has been has been with cannabis in terms of uh, who, who's done it best. I mean, really, we're looking at the Americas here. So you're, you're, Uruguay has gone for a much stricter kind of state controlled, almost a state monopoly model where you can only buy unbranded uh, government licensed products of, of fixed potency at fixed price from pharmacies. Um, the, the, the American reforms at state level in places like California and Colorado and Washington and, and Oregon and so on have tended to be much more commercialized models. So it's, it's a bit more like alcohol, you know, with branded products and a certain amount of advertising. Uh, and, and Canada, has, I think, is sort of somewhere between the two of those. It's, it's not as state controlled as Uruguay, but it's not as commercialized as in the US. So, it, you know, the, the cannabis products that are going to be sold in, in Canada have to be in plain packaging with health warnings on. They can have a small branding and logo, but essentially they'll look a bit more like pharmaceuticals. That um, they're going to be sold mo in most states, in most provinces rather. They'll be sold from uh, state-controlled uh, outlets. So there's a state monopoly on the retailing, um, but not the production. Um, and there's and there's going to be very strict controls on advertising and uh, and and uh, promotions. So Canada, I think, probably is a, uh, is a is a good model, is a good sort of uh, reasonable middle ground, uh, very much rooted in a sort of public health ethos. Um, and I hope it's successful. Um, but, but it, it, you know, the, the shops haven't even opened in Canada yet, so that doesn't happen until October. So we obviously have to wait and see how that's unfolding. But even the ones that I, I, I you know, are, are less to my taste, the more commercial models in the U.S., you look at the out outcomes of, of those ones and they're still pretty good. I mean, you know, there hasn't been an, a terrible spike in, in use. There hasn't been a sort of leap in, in uh, you know, cannabis impaired driving accidents. Um, there's been a massive drop in uh, arrests and criminalization, particularly of young people. And there's been substantial tax revenue generated, some of which has been, you know, directed into, uh, you know, drug prevention and other sort of social goods. So, even the even what I would view as the worst of the of the legal models isn't that bad, uh, and it, it's not really bad at all in terms of its outcomes. Well, yeah, I hope it works out right. I'm really rooting for Canada with the hope that that legalization actually achieves um, the aims and positive outcomes, not only for the Canadian people but also for other countries looking to change their drug policy. Well, I mean, I, I should I should I should confess that I that I I was you know, peripherally at least involved in the cannabis, in, in the cannabis uh, reform process in Canada as, as an advisor to the federal task force um, uh, who produced uh, a report and recommendations that formed the basis of the uh, Cannabis Act, Cannabis uh, Regulation Act. And I was also involved in, in uh, Uruguay, actually, as an advisor to the Uruguayan government. But I, where I haven't been involved is in the US, uh, kind of because they have their own um, ecosystem of activists and, and, and policy experts. So they, they, they had, I think they had less need for sort of external um, advisors in, in the US. 
but uh, but yeah, I mean, like I say, a lot, of, and there's a lot of variation in the U.S. as well. I mean, you can't generalize that. There's there's was it nine states now or, or eight states, and they've done it in very different ways. So Vermont has just legalized actually, but they don't have a commercial market. They have a at the moment anyway. They have a give and grow. It's called where you can you you're allowed to grow in the home and you're allowed to share on a nonprofit basis. But there's no uh, kind of commercial retail market there. At least there isn't yet. Um, which is itself quite an interesting model. But uh, that's very, very different from what's going on in Colorado or California, where you have more conventional shops with cool signs outside selling uh, you know, an array of cannabis products, many of them branded inside. So that, you need to be careful not to generalize about the US experience. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so in both cases in the US and Canada, over half of the US have a legal medical market and Canada have had a medical market since 2001. And now there's a lot of talk about medical cannabis in the UK. So do you think changing laws around the medical use of cannabis is a key movement for the recreational market? Or do you think it should be kept separate as it's just been coincidental that a medical market has come before it? No, I mean, they're, they're undoubtedly linked within the sort of political discourse. But I th- I'm, I'm, I'm uneasy about the way that they're often conflated, because I think they are very different. I mean, the, the nature of Medicines regulation is very different from the nature of, of, of a regulatory system for a, for a recreational drug um, in terms of its goals, in terms of the, the, the mechanisms and regulatory agencies and so on. Um, so I, I think it's very important to keep them separate uh, in terms of discussing policy, um, but they do overlap undoubtedly. I mean, I think the one, one of the problems with development and, and, implement, and, and use of uh, medical uh, cannabis-based medicines and research around cannabis-based medicines has been the wider environment of, uh, you know, drug war politics. So that's been very unfortunate. And then it's something that uh, David Nutt's spoken about a lot is that he, he, you know, it's very difficult to do research on drugs that are in Schedule 1. It's actually easier to do, he was saying it's easier for him to do research into heroin than it is to do research into cannabis is you know a, a ridiculous state of affairs so um th- there is there is an overlap uh both in terms of the political discourse and in terms of some of the uh, the questions around regulation but there are also significant differences and i think we need to try and keep those two issues separate as far as as far as possible but i think that the, the fact that the the medical cannabis issue has suddenly opened up in the uk uh, I mean, there's been a lot of there's been a head of steam building around that for for a long time, and there's been lots of NGOs and activists and um, parliamentary activity um, going on at an increasing intensity over the last couple of years. But but and it was pushed over the line, obviously, by the Billy Caldwell story and the Alfie Dingley story, and the, the, these sort of the tabloids jumped on these stories, uh, and the, the media generally, in fact, jumped on these stories of this this poor kid with epilepsy and. I think that's been very useful. I think congratulations are due to the people who, who at VoltFast and, and UPA and some of the other organisations that, that that orchestrated those those media campaigns. And it's brilliant, you know, it's brilliant that that's happened. It's brilliant that people soon will have access to cannabis-based medicines that are potentially useful for them. Um, and and it does reflect the changing times, I think, in the drugs debate that that people aren't quite so terrified of drugs you know it's not so you can you can suddenly uh you you can talk about this without being you know when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Labeled uh, some sort of evil, evil legalizer uh, or, or sort of you know, being off your head on drugs or, or whatever other cliche stereotypes have been thrown at reformers. So it reflects a change in times. Um, is it going to help the, the recreational cannabis debate? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I expect it will if it reduces some of the sort of stigma about talking about cannabis regulation. But again, I have this sort of unease that the two things can be conflated. But certainly historically, in most places, medical cannabis has come first. And I guess that's not really surprising because I think sick people should be a priority over people who want to get high but it's also we've got the mounting evidence from around the world i mean the fact you've got countries all over the world now are implementing or have implemented legal cannabis access for medical uses of one form or another um it also makes it increasingly difficult for the government to deny um that cannabis is a use can, can be cannabis-based medicines can be useful and to sort of deny that it's possible to, to regulate them because clearly it, it is possible yeah, I definitely agree with you and the fact that I don't necessarily like them being linked together, the medical and the recreation. Um, but I do think it's good in changing the mindset of having a constant dialogue in your head telling you that drugs are bad. So with the fact that the medical market suggests that uh, drugs can actually do good, which makes me think that there's a potential for psychedelics, which have been in trials for medical use with mental health illnesses, such as LSD and psilocybin for depression or MDMA for PTSD. So it makes me think that we could get to a point where people think, oh, this drug isn't all bad, you know? I, th I think so. But, I, but again, I'm wary because, you know, it, it may, you know, fentanyl has has uh, medical uses, but recreationally, it's 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 a nightmare. So, you know, you have to you have to be careful. Ketamine um, has medical uses, but, you know, any of these drugs can be can can be uh, used medically, but they can that their their recreational uses can also be. Can potentially very risky you know cannabis itself is not with it may be lower risk relative to some of these other things but it's not zero risk um so again i'm sort of i'm, I'm a bit wary of sort of going oh look this is a medicine how bad can it be and you kind of go uh fentanyl you know it, uh, the, or you know heroin is a medicine cocaine is a medicine and methamphetamine uh, is a medicine these are all in the these are all in the lock cabinet in any hospital in the uk but um 
they're also potentially can be can be very dangerous if used misused so we need i just feel we need to be a bit careful there and it, it comes back to my general desire to see that the, the medical and non-medical debates kept separate acknowledging the overlaps um both politically and practically but but for the most part i think best kept best kept apart yeah okay so i'm gonna ask a question that's a little broader than just for cannabis um, but why do you think that the war on drugs has been so resilient to change? Ah, well, that, that is that is a very good question. Um, and I think uh, for me, I, f- I feel like the war on drugs is it's, it's sort of operated in a, a different space from normal sort of evidence-based social policy norms. It's been very much framed in in sort of binary moral terms as you know, drugs are bad or even drugs are evil. So, you know, drugs are described as evil in the UN, uh, 1961 UN Drug Convention. Um, and and the, because, of, because of that evil, we have a duty to combat them. That, that's actually the, that's the language used in the UN Convention, which is the kind of founding document of global prohibition. Um, and, and once you frame, frame the issue in those terms as evil, and these sort of, you know, it's very black and white terms, um, and, and uh, the, the, an evil against which we must sort of declare war, you, you move the debate into a very different space. It becomes, you know, fighting that evil becomes sort of righteous in and of itself. And you don't need scrutiny. You don't need evidence and evaluation because we're fighting evil. Like, we're, you know, we're fighting an invading army. We're fighting the Nazis. We're fighting the, the bad guys. Um, and, and so drugs has been framed in those terms um, as, you know, an existential threat to our society and a threat to our health and a threat to our security and a threat to our children that we must fight against. And in that context, you don't need evidence of effectiveness. And that's good for people who fought for the drug warriors because there isn't any evidence of effectiveness. By, by any, by any you know, objective measures, it's been a complete disaster. Um, but but it hasn't, it's not systematically evaluated. That it's, it's ineffectiveness is not, um, is, is not, well, it hasn't until relatively recently been uh, meaningly, meaningfully scrutinized. And, and, and that just makes it easy for, for it to become uh, a political uh, enterprise rather than a, a more standard social policy evidence-based enterprise. And I think that's what's happened. You know, politicians have, uh, and, and policymakers and leaders around the world have benefited from drug war rhetoric. They, they hype up a threat uh, and then they put themselves forward as protecting the people and the, and the children and so on from that threat. And it's, it's in some ways that you can see a sort of overlap with some of the immigration debate. You know, all these horrible foreigners are coming into our country and they're going to, they're like, like Trump talking about rapists and thieves and, and, and murderers. Um, and, and he will protect, he will protect us from them. It's a bit like that with drugs. You know, it's, it's presented as a threat uh, and politicians present themselves as, as the tough, um, enforcers who are going to protect us from that threat, and in that context, it doesn't need any evaluation or scrutiny. And and politicians have become so sort of almost addicted to that sort of drug war, tough talking, enforcement rhetoric, um, and and the moral sort of binary nature of it that they've they've kind of talked themselves into a corner, and, and it becomes very difficult for a lot of politicians who bought into that drug war rhetoric to to move away from it because. Um, you know, if you if you've um, talking about war and fighting and combat, if you, if you move away from that and and fighting this evil and fighting this threat, if you start to move away from that, 
um, you can be seen or portrayed as surrendering or as weak or as, uh, you know, um, you know, not tough anymore. Um, and politicians don't like that. They like to be seen as, as, as strong. And the, the war on drugs played into that. And I think that's to me that I mean, there, there's lots of other things going on, but that's at the heart of the problem is this sort of deeply, profoundly, culturally entrenched drug war narrative that it's very, very difficult for politicians to snap out of. But the, 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 more, the optimistic note to end on with that is, is that I think that things are changing. Uh, that, that, that narrative doesn't work as well now as it did five or 10 or, or 20 years ago um, because the critique of the failing of the war on drugs has become so um, prevalent. You, you just can't get away with it anymore. And, and, and you, you can't say those things without being, without being challenged. So things are changing, but that, that it's taken a long time to unpick that rhetoric and, and that narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a positive place to take us to our final question. My question on the golden ticket. If you were given a golden ticket for one drug policy to be implemented immediately, what would you choose and why? Or on the flip side, what drug policy would you remove and why? <laughs> It's a bit. It's, that's one of those questions. A bit like where you say, if you get given one wish and you you ask for three more wishes, <laughs> are you going to ask for more wishes? Um, what I would do, I, I would I would uh, legalize all drugs globally. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. The biggest wish. <laughs> yeah. I, I no. I think what what I would do is I would I would I would I'd like to see a paradigm shift away from um, an ideologically driven criminal justice and punitive enforcement paradigm that has dominated the discourse for the last 20 or 30 years towards um, one that is very much more rooted in public health, community safety, and, and human rights. Because I think if, if we prioritize those, those, uh, those things, if we prioritize public health and human rights and, and, and community safety and uh, development and security, if we prioritize those and we, and we meaning, meaningfully evaluate the different alternative options to see which ones deliver on those priorities, it only points in one direction and it's never going to be towards um, a war on drugs. Awesome, thank you. Is there anything else you would like to add or plug? Uh, no, I think I've, I've been, I've been uh, burbling on probably far, for far too long already. I mean, if anyone wants to find out more about Transform, uh, check out our website, which is tdpf.org.uk or just Google Transform Drugs. Um, you can follow me on Twitter on at Steve Transform. Um, and yeah, if, I mean, if people are supportive or interested in the work we do, please get in touch because um, it's, it's really important as we move forward with uh, the, the, the reform agenda that people get involved because we can't do it all by ourselves. Well, thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right, fantastic. Well, look, good to talk to you. Good luck with it all. And um, yeah, stay in touch. And that was our interview with Steve Rolls. Check out Transform Drug Policy Foundation online, follow them and Steve on Twitter and join the movement. See you next time. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 